could have your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Mark chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 12. Mark 2, 1 through 12. As you turn there, I want to say, if you are seeking, or one of those people who is seeking fame, I personally think you must be plumb crazy. When you're famous, you have paparazzi, you have constant media attention, you have crazies looking perhaps even to do you harm, either by what you say or what you've done, or perhaps by physical safety itself. And as this section of scripture indicated, Jesus already was gaining fame and popularity in the region of Galilee. According to chapter 1, verse 45, it tells us he could no longer openly enter a town because people were coming from him from every quarter. He found it impossible to openly go to these places, and yet even when he did find time to go to what he considered at this point his own home, assumedly perhaps the house of Simon and Andrew, then hear what happens. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when Jesus returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving the spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything this. We consider these words. Let us bow briefly in prayer. Father, we pray that these words applied by your spirit to our hearts would bring faith and would bring us closer to you. Draw us near, Lord, to your son Jesus and to the Holy Spirit who can open our ears and our hearts to hear and to understand this word and apply it to our lives. I pray, Father, that the words, the thoughts, the attitudes, spoken, thought, done here, might be pleasing in your sight. And Lord, if they are not, if they are not consistent with your word, let them pass away and never be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to ask you a couple of questions. First of all, have you ever been in a dialysis room? Perhaps some of you have had this treatment. If you have, you're probably still having it. It's a very difficult treatment. It's to clean your blood 
Some people don't have the ability by their power producing the, uh, by their body producing the right things anymore to have their blood cleansed to the point where they would not become toxic. And so people go for dialysis treatments in often uh, hospitals or other medical facilities. At the bigger city hospitals, there could be scores, dozens, even a hundred people in one room all taking this treatment at once, and this going on every single day of the week. Imagine if somebody could go into that room and heal every one of them. Jesus could. Now imagine in another situation, you go to a high-security prison. I've been to one before. I've been to one where there's a high-security prison where the inmates are in prison for 23 out of 24 hours. They are in a solitary cell. But they're given the privilege sometimes for chaplains or volunteers to come and speak to them about the Bible while they're in their cell. Imagine all the sinful thoughts and deeds represented in that place. These individuals are not in such a condition because they're sinless. And imagine all the sins that have taken place in their lives of the most hardened criminals we can possibly imagine. Now imagine someone has the power to simply dismiss all those sins. Jesus could. That's what this section of scripture is all about. A Savior who has the authority to forgive sins and also the authority to heal. But in this process, we see that Jesus first denotes faith. Secondly, Jesus demonstrates authority. And finally, Jesus desires the glorification of God the Father. First of all, what a story. You can get the picture. There's a very crowded house. Now, I don't think those houses were the mansions that are on Myrtle Beach. I think they were a little bit smaller, probably a little bit simpler. They probably didn't have winding staircases with fancy banisters. They probably didn't have all the modern conveniences we had. But it seems to have been a house big enough to house uh, perhaps two to three generations of the same family. Simon and Andrew's house, we think this is where it is, that was mentioned in chapter 1. His mother-in-law, Simon's mother-in-law, lived there. And perhaps some others in the family, this is probably as close as you'll get to a middle-class home. Because after all, they were fishermen, they had a fishing business. And so here they were in this place. But when the people found out that Jesus had come back to Capernaum and was at this place... Rather than Jesus going out into the countryside, they came to him, and they packed the place. The fire, fire marshals of the day would probably not be happy, because there wasn't even room. They couldn't even get in the door. In fact, it was so packed, it probably was to the point where they could not move. But here it was. What does he do in these situations? Well, he speaks the word. Now, I know it says the word preach. This is not the normal word for preach. That was in chapter 1, verse 39, uh, where it says he was preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. It doesn't mean that here he's not preaching too, but speaking the word, I think, is, is evident that he's taking the occasion that's given him with all of these people in an unannounced fashion, always prepared 
to give the word of God to them. And so he does. And then you'll notice something else that takes place. This is the wonderful story in here. Not Story not as in a fictional story, but story as in the details of a true historical event. This is, after all, given in great detail in Luke, as well as referred to in Matthew. It says, verse 3, They came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. That's how you kind of get the idea here. What, what a story. And, and, and here we understand in this type of house, sometimes the roof was an important place because it got so hot there, sometimes they would sleep on the roof. Or they might have other things that they did on the roof. So it was a flat surface. It was probably, of course, not concrete that we have today, but it was a hard surface, probably with dried mud and other things there so they could walk on it and it was stable. So these four individuals take this paralytic up on the roof and they knew that they couldn't get in by the door. It's so packed in the house. So the language here in the Greek tells us they began digging through the roof. So you can imagine everybody down below, probably some... Uh, crumbs of the roof uh, falling down upon them and all this noise and scuffling up there on the roof. And pretty soon there are these individuals uh, that perhaps you see a finger or a hand come, come through the hole that they've dug in the roof. Pretty soon they, they've taken a whole section of the roof off and they take the bed that this paralytic is on and lower him through the roof. What a story. What is Jesus looking for? It says when Jesus saw their faith. That's interesting. It doesn't say when he saw their tenacity, when he saw their willingness to dig through the roof, when he saw that they were doing all these things, he said when he saw their faith. And that means not just their presence. You know, there are all kinds of people there. This passage reminds us of the crowds that are there. You know, the, the crowds are there. It says uh, very much so. The crowds of people. What a crowd. They, they couldn't even move in the room. And, of course, we know by this point the crowds are coming out to him. No matter where he goes, out in the wilderness, they follow him. Uh, to the synagogue, they follow him. Here in the house, they're, they're coming in great numbers. Uh, their faith is not demonstrated just by their presence of being with him. But it wasn't just the crowds. Matthew tells us in his account that there were scribes that were present. And Luke describes it as Pharisees and teachers of the law from all the towns of the region and even as far as Judea and Jerusalem. There were people there to check Jesus out. But just because they were there does not mean that they had faith. Just like you're here this morning. Just because you're here doesn't mean you believe in Jesus. So it's not just the presence of the people he's looking for. He's looking for, in this case, kind of an interesting phrase, their faith. Notice it's not the paralytic's faith. It might be the paralytic included with his four friends that are accompanying him. But it's their faith. Now, of course, we know, is it faith in Jesus 
as the Savior, or is it faith in Jesus to heal? Well, we don't know at this point in the story. But they have faith. How do we know that they have faith? Well, R. Kent Hughes, in his commentary on this particular passage, reminds us of three different parts of their faith that they exhibit here. First of all, it's persistent faith. Well, it had to be persistent for them to dig through the roof, didn't it? There were barriers presented. Even if they had faith just in Jesus' power to heal, it had to be a persistent faith because they couldn't even get in the building. And so now they go up and they dig this hole. You know, this wasn't a, uh, you know, okay, punch through the hole, lower it down. This took some time. It probably took some time, especially to prevent the roof from caving in and falling on all the people that are inside. So they were persistent in their faith. He also described, R. Kent Hughes describes this as a creative faith. He says, if I was there, I would say to myself, why didn't I think of that? I have to say, if the place was packed and crowded, I was probably thinking, well, how can I get his attention when everybody else leaves? I wouldn't be thinking about going through the roof. It's very creative. And finally, he says it was sacrificial. How was it sacrificial? Well, you know, they didn't really consider here, as of most importance, the liability of the property damage they're doing to the house. They also weren't necessarily considering the danger that they were putting everybody else in. After all, were they digging through a portion of the roof that would make the whole house collapse? They were so intent on having their friend healed of his paralyzed fate that they were willing to do whatever it took despite the consequences for this man to encounter Jesus. What a sacrificial faith. And notice here, by describing their faith, Jesus illustrates it's not just the psychosomatic state of a sick person that might have faith in Jesus healing him. The faith was also in those who were helping him. In that sense, it was a servant faith of the four that accompanied him. And Jesus often, in these encounters, if you haven't noticed as you read through the Gospels, denotes their faith. I have to say, faith is so very important. How does creative, active, persistent faith get displayed in the world today. Well, one of the people that comes to mind is the hymn writer Fanny Crosby. Fanny Crosby lived from 1820 to 1915. She lived 95 years. She lived a long time. But perhaps one of the things that she was most known for besides writing hymns was the fact that she was blind. She was blind, and yet this American poetess wrote over eight thousand hymns. Eight thousand. Can you imagine? It's hard enough when you're given an assignment in seminary to write a poem or to write something like a song or a hymn or something like that to write one. Eight thousand? God gifted her in such a way that despite her blindness, she still wanted to praise him. Despite her inability to do the kinds of things that we take for granted every day, he gave her the creative, persistent faith 
to write 8,000 hymns glorifying the name of Jesus. Jesus tells us that faith is important. In all of these passages where healing takes place, now, now we can talk all day about does it mean that they had to have faith to be healed? Well, evidently not because there were times where he healed without asking about faith. That's not true. Is it that somebody doesn't have enough faith that they are not healed? No, the Bible doesn't say that. It just says that in certain circumstances, those who came to him were healed by him so that he could be glorified. James tells us that faith without works is dead. If these four men had faith without works, the paralytic would never have gotten in the building. How easily do you give up? when difficult barriers come to your faith. But Jesus does not just denote faith. This passage really is about his authority. In the early ministry days of Jesus, it's describing his authority. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 22, the people saw that there was authority in his teaching. He was unlike the scribes and the Pharisees. We think that what they would do is they would refer to all the rabbis and all the scholars of the day, and, and they would never have any authority in their own teaching. And yet here was Jesus who would say things like, You have heard this, but I tell you that. And even demons obeyed him, it tells us. So he had authority in teaching. He had authority over demons, chapter 1, verse 27. And here the authority is expanded to understand he not only has authority in his prophetic office of teaching, he not only has authority over the spiritual realm, but he has the authority to forgive sins. Notice what he says when he saw their faith, this is verse 5, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. I don't know about you, but if I was in that crowd and hearing what was taking place and seeing the lowering of this body uh, that was broken and could no longer function, perhaps even born that way, a guy who could not walk, and he was told, your sins are forgiven, I would be thinking to myself, well, that's not really his problem. The guy can't walk. And yet that's what Jesus says. First of all, you have to understand this is a blatant claim to have the power to do this. When Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, what right does he have to say this? In fact, those sitting there, it says, the scribes, in fact, we're told here by the combination of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, again, that these scribes that are here, they're probably a delegation of individuals checking out who Jesus is. There are those from scribes and Pharisees and teachers of the law who have been told of what was going on up here in Galilee, and they're up here perhaps even on what we Presbyterians might call it a commission to find out what is going on here and, and, and report back to those in the Sanhedrin or in the authority in Jerusalem to describe to them who this individual was and what was taking place. And so this blatant claim to them, they begin to question. In fact, verse 7 says, as they're sitting there questioning in their hearts, according to verse 6, verse 7 says, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Now, it's interesting. 
Jesus asks the question, which is easier, to tell him he's forgiven or to tell him he's healed? Is forgiving sins harder than healing? One one sense, yes. Sins are moral. They're not physical. They're not as well known. Uh, the, the repercussions of these things, the consequences, are way beyond perhaps what a normal person could handle. And of course, how did he forgive sins? It's looking forward to the cross because it cost the blood and life of Jesus Christ in order for forgiveness to take place. It's also tough to prove. Now when it comes to the healing part of it, you knew right away if somebody was really healed. But when it comes to being forgiven of sins, how would you know? Well, there are some evidences, but it's hard to prove. So he's challenged by these scribes with the charge of blasphemy. Think of this. Here is the Son of God, incarnate, in the flesh, come to forgive people of their sins, to preach repentance and the kingdom of God, and he's being accused of blasphemy. And it's because they knew something that was true. Now it's interesting in verse 7, the ESV translation says, but God alone. The literal sense here is the one God. Only the one God can do that. Luke uses a different word. It's the word alone or only. So between those two combinations here, we're understood that they said only God can forgive sins. And it's only the one God that can forgive sins. In fact, they're saying here, Jesus is claiming either to be God or to be another God. And this is blasphemy. But Jesus here, even in this difficult situation where he's looking to heal this individual and he's being called out by these officers of the religious courts with a charge of blasphemy, he demonstrates he's, he has the authority to discern even the thoughts of these people. Notice they weren't saying these things outright. It's not like they were saying, oh, Jesus, here you're blaspheming. No, it was saying amongst themselves, probably in murmuring voices or even just in their own hearts, why does he speak like that? It says they were questioning in their hearts. And immediately Jesus, according to verse 8, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? He's demonstrating he has the authority to discern their thoughts. He says, I know what you're doing. Now, it's interesting. You may not know, but we installed security cameras here at the church. We can see you right now if we have the right app on our telephone because there's a camera in the back of the sanctuary, not the camera that does our online streaming, but another camera in the corner that shows the entire room. We know who's here, or if we were to look at it, we would. But I don't know your thoughts. I don't know what you're thinking. Sometimes I think I know what you're thinking, and I may be terribly wrong. Sometimes my wife thinks she knows what I'm thinking, or vice versa. And we find out, boy, we weren't so right after all. 
But Jesus has the authority to discern the thoughts of us. What you're thinking right now, even if you're thinking, I can't believe the pastor is going on and on about this. Even if you're thinking about some other portion of scripture while we're looking at the text. Even if you're thinking, I want to go home and have lunch. Whatever it is, God knows what you're thinking. And because Jesus is very God, as well as very man, he was able to perceive their thoughts. And of course, the other thing, which they already know, is he apparently has authority over the physical. Because here's what he says. Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And you know what? He did. Just like that. So if you think that the physical was harder because it requires immediate verification, here's the proof. As they say, the proof is in the pudding. Jesus demonstrated his authority, and it happened. Now, why all this about authority? We know in our house, we know very clearly that a new school year is starting soon. I know that these students will scope out their teachers to see what they can get away with. And the teachers have to be prepared, if they're going to have control of their classroom, to be tested by these students. And, of course, we know that the tests seem to be more and more severe as each year goes by. It's because these kids, in a sense, are skeptics like we are. Does this teacher really know what she's talking about? Can this teacher really control the classroom? Can we get away with anything? All these things are running through their minds. This is what's going through the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees. Who is this guy? Who teaches in these ways? Who is he that says he can forgive sins or heal somebody? Submission to the authority of Jesus Christ is not natural. In fact, consider the witnesses to this event. How many of them expected Jesus just to be able to rebuke this illness or this paralysis that the paralytic had? How many of them expected him to be able to forgive sins? How many of us did we encounter the truths of Christ and yet remain skeptics for a time? It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to recognize that Jesus is Lord. It doesn't matter whether you believe he's Lord. It doesn't matter whether or not you accept him as Lord. He is Lord. He does have these authorities. These events, if they're true, demonstrate he truly has authority in teaching over demons to forgive sins, to discern the thoughts of others, and over the physical world. He has this authority if this event is true. And yet so many of us doubt it, except by the Spirit of Christ coming within us. And what happens? What happens... When these things take place and we recognize what Jesus has done, verse 12 tells us this. He rose, immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Now, if we were to turn the attention to the book of Luke, in fact, I think it's printed on your outline there. I don't have mine with me. 
But in Luke chapter 5, we're reminded that not only the crowd said something like this, but the individual did as well. In Luke 5, it says here, Immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. Individual glorification. When you realize what God has done in your own life, what do you want to do? You want to glorify him. In this case, after physically and spiritually healing this paralytic by the specific record recorded in Luke, this man demonstrated that his faith was just was not just in the power of Jesus to heal him, but now, confirmed by Christ's power, was in the glory of God in this Son of Man, Jesus. Individual glorification. But notice it doesn't stop there. It also involves universal glorification. It says the people were astounded or amazed they're shocked. They can't believe what has taken place. They can't believe that his sins are forgiven and he's healed. Both these things must be true because Jesus' healing was apparent. And these are previously unseen ashes. They've never seen anything like it. One counter this periodically throughout these healing miracles. Some people would get well over different things. But a blind man born blind at birth was not healed ever before in their knowledge. This, in this case, they say, I've not seen anything like this paralytic being healed on the spot. The pundits are telling us there's another election around the corner. I wish they wouldn't do this in August of the year previous to the election. Each candidate who becomes nominated to represent his particular political party will choose a vice presidential candidate to run with them. What is it about these vice presidential candidates? We don't really know what they're going to do in office until they're given some czar thing or whatever once they get there. Their campaign job is not so nebulous, but their whole purpose in their campaign is to bring glory and votes to the top of the ticket. For the vice presidential candidate, it's not about them anymore. It's about the person who is over them. When Jesus acts in miraculous ways and demonstrated here this morning in someone professing faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what time or way in which he worked in Sonia's life, he did a miraculous thing by bringing her to recognize her sins to confess them, and then by the blood of Christ to forgive her. That's a miraculous thing. She couldn't do that on her own. The Spirit had to make her heart ready and willing to confess her sins and believe upon the Savior. And once we understand those things, we don't bring glory to Sonia because of what she's done. We don't bring glory to the pastor who baptized her. We bring glory to God for what he has done for us. Jesus acts to bring glory to the Father. Are you? I'm a baseball fan, you know this. In fact, this week I suffered on the plane going up to Pittsburgh to watch a couple ball games. I couldn't cancel the trip. I'm too much Scottish. I, I just can't imagine uh, giving away all that money that was meant to enjoy with my family. And so we went, and I began to ponder some of these baseball teams. 
There are a couple teams this year, particularly in the National League, that have had multiple stars on big contracts. They get paid a lot of money. They get paid more money than I'll see in my lifetime. And yet, a couple of these teams have been great big disappointments. They were favorites to win because of all the money they're spending and the superstar, megastar talent. How can a team, other than injuries, how can a team with such talent still lose? Sometimes it's because those superstars, not all the time, but sometimes because those superstars about, are about me and not the team. They're more concerned about their money, their contract, their glory, their individual accomplishments. And it's all about them. But in this historical event, the reverse is true. It's not about the faith of the four guys who dug through the roof, is it? Although Jesus points it out, and we marvel at their faith. It's not about them. It's about Jesus, who is the Savior of sinners and who seeks to glorify the Godhead. Is your faith in you? You know, we can have a wonderful testimony and tell it to everybody in the world, and sometimes it's just a way for us to get attention. Or is your faith in Jesus, who saved you? Do you submit to him and glorify him? Or is life about something else? This passage reminds us Jesus has the power to forgive. He has authority over so much because he is Lord. But he's also the Savior of sinners. May we reflect on this as we approach the Lord's table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this amazing story of those who were willing to even dig through a roof so their friend could encounter Jesus. Lord, we pray that you will allow us not only to hear this story, but to have the Spirit impact us that we might likewise respond to Jesus and his authority to forgive sins. Lord, forgive us of our sins. Lord, help us. Help us to have faith. And Lord, remind us that Jesus is the Savior of sinners, and that there will come a time when all things will be restored. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.